Good morning, everybody. How are we all? Chris is fine. That's good to hear. Um, If you don't know of this your first time, my name's Ben, I'm the vicar here, and I'm delighted to be able to be speaking to you from the book of Haggai today, which we've been going through as a church. Now, before I start, let me pray. Father God, you spoke to your people thousands of years ago, and I pray that you would speak to us today. Amen. So we've reached a little bit of a turning point in our house. Uh, B and I have been watching a TV show called The Traitors. Anyone else been watching The Traitors? Hetty has, great, great. Uh, And somehow, Annabelle and Florence came down one evening as we we were in the second episode, and they came down, they couldn't sleep. You know, that's what happens with children. They watched it for about five minutes, and they immediately said, well, we want to watch this with you. And I thought, that's great. We can finally not watch Peppa Pig or any other mind-numbingly boring show that children like, and we finally all get to watch a show together on TV. Now, at the start of Traitors, they do a previously on Traitors. I am totally wasted here. I don't know why I'm not in Hollywood. I mean, I mean, I should be in Hollywood. But anyway, they do that at the start, and then they recap the last episode. Now, as a church, we've been studying the book of Haggai together, and we're kind of nearly towards the end of it. It's a very short book. We're nearly towards the end of it. Um, But if this is your first time here, or you've just kind of forgotten everything that Haggai is about, I'm going to do a previously on Haggai. Great. So Haggai was a prophet that lived roughly just over 500 years before Jesus was born. And he told the people to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed, but the people weren't really interested in rebuilding God's house. Instead, they were far more interested in rebuilding their own houses. Now, Haggai comes and tells them, you know, that's probably not right and you probably should get your priorities straight. And so they eventually start rebuilding the temple. And that's roughly where we catch up with the passage today. Now, in the first half of this passage, Haggai asks the priests some questions. He first asks them a question about meat, specifically carrying consecrated meat in your pockets. The question is not whether carrying a burger or a piece of steak in your pockets is wrong, because as we all know, there is nothing wrong with carrying meat in your pockets. The question is, if a priest was to carry a bit of meat in their pockets that has been consecrated to God and it touches something else in their pockets, maybe like a a full-bodied Merlot or kind of some garlic-infused olive oil that all priests carry around with them in their pockets, trust me, I am one, does it also make it consecrated? Consecrated means holy, set apart for God, something that is acceptable to God, something that's in some way part of the divine sphere of this world. This meat would have been consecrated by being offered to God by the priest on behalf of either a person or maybe a group of people. And then the priest gets to take home part of the offering for his tea. 
It doesn't happen nowadays. I don't know why. Now, if this holy, set-apart, acceptable-to-God meat touches anything else that's randomly in the priest's pockets, and that you are having a great time at the front, can I join you, please? Don't worry, they are absolutely fine. I much prefer an audience that giggles than looks at me sternly. Uh, so... If the, the question is, if this holy set-apart meat touches anything else in their pockets, does the holiness spread to that object? Now, the priest says, no. Holiness is not contagious. It doesn't spread. Holy meat can't transmit holiness to anything else. It can't make that full-bodied Merlot in your pocket acceptable to God. It can't make that garlic-infused olive oil in your pocket somehow part of the divine sphere of this world. Things can't catch holiness. Hands, face, space is not needed here. Haggai then asked the priest the opposite question. So if a person touches a dead body and then touches the full-bodied red wine in their pocket or maybe the garlic-infused olive oil, does the wine or the oil become defiled? Defiled means unholy, unclean, unacceptable to God, cannot exist in the presence of God. And the answer from the priests is yes. Unholiness is contagious and can be spread from one thing to another. When I first started at Christchurch, I visited someone's house very, very early on. Now, I hadn't met them before, but I went over, I knocked on the door and they invited me in, and after a friendly little chat, I was shown into their lounge. Now, their lounge had a lightish coloured carpet, And I hadn't taken my shoes off because I kind of assumed my shoes were clean. So I walk around four steps into their lounge and I look around to ask, you know, is there any particular seat you want me to sit at? Do you have a seat? Do you want me to sit anywhere? And as I look around, I see these four muddy footprints embedded into this cream-coloured carpet. If I had had my children with me, I would have definitely blamed them. But they weren't with me at this point, and there was no way of kind of covering it up because they were just behind me and they had also noticed. I turned around to them and I said, is that my shoes? And knowing full well that it was my shoes, they very graciously nodded at me, and it's at this point that I wanted the world to swallow me up. Unfortunately, sinkholes in this country are quite rare, and so... Instead, I took my shoes off, I apologised to them, I kept apologising all night, and now whenever I see them, I keep apologising for getting mud all over their carpet. Clean shoes don't make carpets clean. Dirty shoes make carpets dirty. Clean shoes don't clean things. You can't kind of walk around your lounge if it needs a hoover just with a pair of clean shoes on. It's not going to clean your carpet up. Dirty shoes pass their dirt on to anything they touch. As anyone with a child will tell you, if you go on a muddy walk with a child with wellies on, that mud gets everywhere. Places you are surprised they can reach with their feet will have mud on it from your children. It's the same with holiness and unholiness in the Old Testament. 
The Jewish law says in Numbers, anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean. Unholiness is contagious. It can be passed on. Holiness is not contagious. It can't be passed on. Now, so far, the Israelites know all of this. This is not any new information to them. The reasons for Haggai saying this is made clear in verse 14. And it says this. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. The people have dirty shoes on and everything they touch is defiled. This unholiness spreads throughout their work, which was mainly in an agricultural economy, what they do. And it spreads to their worship, what they offer. Everything they touch becomes dirty, unholy and unacceptable to God. And the reason for this in the book of Haggai is the unbuilt house of God. The skeleton of the ruined temple lies like a corpse in their midst, contaminating everything around. Haggai asked if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? The answer was yes. In the same way, if a community defiled by contact with the dead body of God's house does or offers anything, does that become defiled? The answer is yes. Their choice of not rebuilding the temple and instead of rebuilding their own houses left the skeleton of God's house causing everything else they did or they offered to become unholy and unacceptable to God. They could worship God as much as they wanted. They could offer God as many sacrifices. They could become the most religious person, but it was all unacceptable to God. God's unbuilt house was a statement that the people didn't care if God lived with them, that life could happen without God being involved. They sought creation's blessing without loving the creator. They pursued religious benefits without desiring the God that stands behind the religion. They searched for grace, even though they neglected the means of grace. They desired redemption without loving the redeemer. They wanted the benefits of God without a relationship with God. So God turns to them and he says to them, Everything you do and offer is unholy and unacceptable to me. Because you do not want me, you only want what I can do for you. And in verse 17 of this passage, we get this haunting line from God. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In this verse, we get a sense of the desperation of God trying anything to get their attention. You don't want me. You only want what I can do for you. So I stopped doing things for you. I struck all the work of your hands. Yet you still did not return to me. Even then, you did not want me. 
In this passage, you see a desperate God being rejected. A God who just wants to be with his people, being abandoned and excluded. A God who is only wanted for what he can do and not for who he is. These sad words of rejection are carried across the centuries and land with us today. God wants to be with us. God wants to know us. God wants to walk with us. God wants to be our priority. God wants to be invited into our minds, into our hearts and into our souls. Yet God is constantly rejected by us, both knowingly and unknowingly. We value being a Christian because of what we think it brings us, not because of the gods we know. We value comfort over the comforter. We value answers to our prayers over the God we pray to. We value our paid work over God's work in us and through us. We value having Christian friends who care for us over having a friendship with God. We value peace about our eternity over the one we will spend eternity with. We value the love of money over the love of God. We value the words, your sins are forgiven, over the words, now go and sin no more. We value our future over the kingdom of God. We value our church over God's church. We value what God can do for us over a relationship with God. We value ourselves over God. And I'm not talking about the world outside the church. I'm talking about those of us who claim to follow him and claim that he is important. The Israelites were God's own people. They would have said they followed God and they would have definitely said that God was important to them. But Haggai steps in as the voice of God and tells these people, you say I'm important, but you don't act like it. Your life does not show it. You don't want me. You only want the parts of me that fit around your pre-existing life. I wonder if Haggai version 2 was to come to Southport. Would he say to us as a church, Christchurch, you don't want me. You only want the parts of me that fit around your pre-existing church. I wonder if Haggai version 2 was to talk to you. Would he be able to say to you, you don't want me, you only want the parts of me that fit around your pre-existing life. And not by what we say, but by how we live our whole life, both inside these walls and probably more importantly, outside these walls. Is God even important to us? Is God even important to you? Following God is not a one-time decision we make after hearing a nice talk. Following God is a lifetime of little decisions we make. In every moment, however we are feeling, whatever we are facing, whatever we are doing. It's lots of often difficult decisions, 
difficult little decisions where we say, God, not my will, but yours. And that we actually do that. We can say God is important. We can come to church, we can tithe our 10%. We can even lead a church. But if our lives do not reflect that God is important, then everything we do is worthless. The good news is that God wants to be with us, but it is our daily choice whether we build a home for God in our lives or we keep him on the outside. The passage finishes with these words from God. From this day on, I will bless you. The people had begun to build the temple. They weren't there yet, but they'd taken the first step in reprioritizing God in their lives and placing him at the center. And God tells them, I will bless you. The blessing of God was important for the Israelites. It meant that God was on your side. It meant that God favoured you. It meant that God would fight for you. It meant that God would be with you. The people take the first little step by starting to rebuild the temple. And then God tells them, I'm on your side. Their work and worship, which was unacceptable and unholy, is transformed. Their relationship with the creator is transformed. Their community is transformed by taking a step towards God. The Bible is full of stories of people who take a step towards God and find themselves changed. In the book of Luke, Jesus is walking through a crowd and a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years reaches out and touches Jesus. This woman, because of her illness, would have been considered ritually unclean. And what she did in this story was not culturally acceptable. If you remember, dirty shoes transfer dirt, but clean shoes don't. You can't make something clean by touch, but you can make something unclean by touching it. Holiness is not contagious. Unholiness is Yet something strange happens in this story. Jesus asks, who's touched me? And the woman comes forward, full of fear and full of anxiety, and admits to touching him. And she says, I've been healed. Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus was holy, set apart for God, Someone who was acceptable to God. Someone that was in some way part of the divine sphere of this world. Yet when Jesus was touched by this unclean woman, Jesus did not become unclean. The woman became clean. The woman was healed. The woman elbowed her way through the crowd to try to reach Jesus. Took a little step of faith tentatively reached out her unclean hand and touched holiness itself. And she discovered that rather than her dirt, her unacceptability to God, her past, her fears, her trauma, her illness, her unholiness being passed on to Jesus, Jesus passed on his cleanness, his closeness to God, his peace, his healing, his love, 
his holiness. The exchange should have gone the other way. Dirty shoes make carpets dirty. But instead, dirty shoes were embraced in the mercy, forgiveness, grace, sacrifice, holiness and love of Jesus and were made clean. This lady took one small scary step and trusted that Jesus was the answer she had been looking for. She trusted herself to Jesus and he did not push her away. He was not contaminated by her past. He was not scared of being made unholy. In the presence of Jesus, holiness works differently. Holiness is somehow contagious. People take a step of faith and come to him unclean, broken, distant from God, dirty, unholy, and they are changed. And we see this most clearly on the cross. On the cross, Jesus does this for everyone, for all of us. He does what he did for that woman, for everyone in this room. Jesus takes all our dirt and makes us clean. He exchanges his closeness to God with our distance from God. He trades his cleanliness for our dirtiness. He exchanges his prioritization of God for our rejection of God. He trades his blessing for our curse. He swaps his holiness for our unholiness, his life for our death. Jesus overturns the rules of the game so that when a person meets him, Jesus does not become dirty, but we become clean. One encounter with Jesus changed the woman's life. One encounter with Jesus can change our life. Whoever you are, However you're feeling, whatever dirt is clinging to you, Jesus wants to meet you and transform your life. The problem in Haggai's day was that the people were content to just keep their hands in, keeping their lives comfortable, keeping God at a distance, acting as if he wasn't important. The woman in the story of Jesus reached out her hand. She got out of her comfort zone. She took a step towards Jesus. She acted as if Jesus was all important. We all have a choice about how we want to live our lives. Do we keep Jesus at arm's length or do we reach out our hand? Do we aim for comfortable lives Or do we get out of our comfort zones? Do we keep Jesus at a distance? Or do we take a step towards Jesus? Do we act as if Jesus is unimportant? Or do we act as if he is all important? And for those brave souls that take a risk, for those that reach out their hands, For those that declare with their words and with their lives that God is important, God says, I will bless you and you will be clean. The question is, Jesus gave up his life for ours. Will we give up our lives for him? Will Jesus be important in our lives? Or will he simply have to fit around our schedule? 
And what does it look like for you today, this week or this year, to not just say that Jesus is important, but to act like it? Let me pray.